0: constant despair, constant frustration, crying, and then you just turn it off.
1: Silently tracing the cracks
2: through the chaos. Everybody wants this to be over. Most people in the healthcare sector are aggravated.
3: Grieving would cannot come back, what's gone away.
4: He was amazing. This guy wanted to live so badly.
5: Feeling the
4: weight of
5: night. Risking your family's life every day, it's been challenging.
3: You can't find your way through the black. So you pray for life. Huge progress. Every day, he was doing more.
6: This is the story of a perfect storm. What happens when struggling, overstressed healthcare workers in the midst of COVID nineteen care for a man who embodies hope? From the Mind of Medicine podcast, this is Parallel Pandemics. I'm clinical health psychologist Dr. Ryan Breshears. You're listening to episode two. It's been said that the eyes are the windows of the soul. When Carlos opened his eyes in May 2021, it was like light breaking through. In an ICU overflowing with critically ill, non-responsive, intubated patients, Carlos engendered a sense of presence, hope, and determination. Admitted during the third wave, the Delta variant was different, but Carlos was a different person in a different kind of patient.
4: My name is uh, Ana Maria Ochoa. I am a medical anthropologist, and I am a medical interpreter. I remember Carlos even before he came to Kenistone because I got a call from a doctor, a provider, and he's like, can we talk to a family member about the family member that's going to be trans- transferred here? And I'm like, yes. It was a very lengthy um, interpretation over the phone. It was a three-way call. And I remember telling the family member um, that this was last resort.
7: We always expect and prepare for the worst. And so I spoke to her and I told her what we were doing, that we were bringing him over. And um, sometimes we may not have enough time to have a conversation after he arrives in order to make a decision. So I got a consent as well for putting him on ECMO if that should be required.
4: And then. Two days later, I, I, I see him, and he was amazing. This guy wanted to live so
6: badly. Like Dr. Saberi, who you heard a moment ago, and who made the decision to transfer Carlos and initiate ECMO, Dr. Elias Chaloub works closely with Ana Marie and the Kenistone ICU team. He vividly recalls his initial encounter with Carlos. He met Carlos the day after he was transferred to Keniston from a nearby facility.
2: We had cannulated him upon arrival, and I I saw him in the morning, and then, you know, he looked at me, he opened his eyes, he was still on the ventilator. And I looked at him and I asked him, do you want to come off the ventilator? And he nodded his head yes. And we manipulated his ECMO, his support devices, and we took him off the ventilator. And he had the biggest smile on his face to be able to breathe. He hasn't been able to breathe for so long, and he was breathing, and he was talking, and he was happy.
6: Dr. Amir Rahman, a critical care physician at Wellstar Kennestone, was one of the attendings.
5: I was the attending in 4 North. I was not the ECMO physician, but I was the attending there uh, during those times. So I was there in that unit when all this was happening. Our team is very closely knit and you know, very very tight program. So every decision that's made, what's happening, everyone is aware of it. This gentleman was wide awake, believe it or not, in spite of the fact that he was completely dependent on this ECMO machine that was keeping him alive.
6: We heard from Brian White in the prior episode. When I first talked with him, Brian told me that he can talk to a wall, but it's clear that he would rather talk to another person. And back in late May 2021, shortly after his admission to Kinnestone, one of those people Brian enjoyed talking to most was Carlos. A colleague of his placed Carlos on ECMO support. Brian met Carlos the next morning and he describes him in a way that resonated with many other team members
1: incredibly good-natured. I mean even with all this craziness going around him and who knows what he did or didn't understand it, especially in the beginning he would smile. It didn't matter the language or language barrier rather it melted away because he would smile. There was interaction, even in the eyes and then of course we got interpretation hospital interpretation involved there was communication. He knew a little bit of English but enough to, you know, enough to basic communication and the tiny bit of Spanish I knew too, I'd try to help and he'd laugh at me, you know, trying to do translations and stuff. And that humanizes a patient. And I mean, a lot of people will tell you, you don't want to get too, too close. You don't want to get too bonded, too connected, but it's, not, it's just not possible. It's not. And especially having worked as a, a nurse for so long at bedside, that is not something that is possible to put a barrier on a patient that you take care of. You just do. It's the same concept of being afraid to fall in love because you're afraid to get burned if something goes wrong. You have to make a connection with your patient, regardless of whether you feel like they're going to do well or not, and I think that's hard for a lot of nurses. Some try to push that away, and it's easier if they're sedated and intubated and not responding to simply take care of somebody and their vital signs. You can easily forget that there's a human in the bed, and you can disassociate. And that's the easiest thing because it doesn't hurt as much if they die. But in this particular situation, within a matter of a week, we had this gentleman up and he was walking around the room. And a few more weeks after that, he tested negative for COVID and we were able to take him out into the unit. And I mean, this guy was walking laps, which is something that we've only had on one other patient since we started this program in 2016.
6: I wanna circle back on something that Brian said.
1: He'd laugh at me, you know, trying to do translations and stuff. And that humanizes a patient.
6: Despite a language barrier, Carlo's alertness and his ability to reciprocate and communicate made for a markedly different experience working with him than has been the case with many COVID-positive ICU patients. Often the interactions have been one-sided and absent reciprocity. They're missing verbal behavior but also the subtleties of nonverbal behaviors. The patients are just so sick and this changes the system of care. I think most people, especially those outside of healthcare, underestimate the impact that a patient who is able to communicate has on the caregivers.
5: You'd be singing, dancing, standing up, you know, responding to everyone. There's people that you have a particular, that have a particular personality, that have particular charisma.
2: You walk in, the smile and the interaction is just very different. There's people you walk in, I mean, if you walk into my room, I'm flat, I am, you know, cranky, you're going to provide all your care. But that emotional attachment is not going to be built in the same way as you walk in. I'm interactive, I'm chatting, I'm smiling, you know, I am showing you compassion as you're showing me compassion. And that bi-directional, bi-directional relationship makes it so easy to get attached. And when you're seeing somebody, one, two, three, four, five six seven eight nine ten weeks with that kind of interaction become family for God's sake you know that's 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 what makes it different that's what makes it different because you build that emotional attachment with that person who is interacting back with you you know it's not just somebody laying there that's the difference that Ekimo added to him is that, You know, most critically ill patients are sedate, you know, you're taking care of them, you provide them 100% of your care, 100% of your compassion, 100% of your empathy, you provide their family support, but they're there. They're not interacting back with you. And when they can, the interaction is minimal. Carlos's interaction was something
5: else. Because he was awake, he was motivated. I mean, he was, listen, Carlos, we were shocked. A month he was in bed, Carlos woke up, Carlos, can you stand up? And Carlos is somehow trying to get up. None of us would get up, but he, so he was motivated. He was strong. He was just, he was just an amazing guy. He was a fighter.
7: He was determined that he was able to get better. It was a very low point in the morale of the ICU. During that time, this is a man who showed us what was possible. I think he made our work worthwhile. This is a guy who lifted the spirits of the entire ICU.
6: Lifting the spirits of an entire team doesn't occur without resonance. There has to be a connection on a deeper level. It has to be a felt and a real experience. Carlos was beginning to shift the collective morale and mood of the group through his charisma, determination, fight, and his willingness to stand defiantly in the face of COVID-19. He was becoming a symbol of hope, and symbols can be powerful. In early 2020, medical illustrators Alyssa Eckert and Dan Higgins created a graphic representing COVID-19 that's been used by the CDC and widely adopted as a visual depiction of the virus. It's a grayish-looking virion particle adorned with reddish-orange triangular-shaped protrusions that resemble the spike proteins of the coronavirus. If an animation company was looking to personify this picture, they might consider merging this illustration with a classic image of the devil as we've seen him portrayed. His head colored orange and red, but this time with bulbous projections replacing the stereotypical horns. Nostrils flared, mouth open, revealing lower canines. From his mouth, this devil spews green particles of something wretched. Imagine the object of this devil's wrath, a healthcare worker, dressed in blue scrubs, wearing PPE, the mask, the gloves, etc. This worker stands defiantly in the face of this devil, left arm folded across his middle, right arm bent at a 90 degree angle, fingers clenched, except for the middle one which is upright and pointed in the devil's face. That's right, the healthcare workers flipping COVID a bird. This picture is literally tattooed on Bob Anderson's left shoulder. On his right arm, he has a somewhat faded tattoo of a Pegasus, and we shouldn't miss the significance of that either. The Pegasus is said to symbolize one who lives the life they were meant to live. And with Bob, each picture holds personal meaning. But unsurprisingly, It's the first of these that draws more attention.
8: Yeah, the first thing most people say when they see it is, boy, gee, that's neat, whatever. Few will ask me, why? Well, when this did start, I got this uh, just after the tattoo parlor's opened back up again, but I had made the idea in my mind that this is what I wanted.
6: Bob is a physical therapy tech. He attended Hunter College in Manhattan's Upper East Side, and his family of origin is still in New York. He originally wanted to become a physical therapist, but he says that life happened and he's been in the greater Atlanta area now for several decades. He's worked at Kenistone for 30 years. He preps the rooms before the therapists see patients. He manages lines, pushes poles, and helps with the breakdown afterwards. But he considers the work his calling and throughout the pandemic, he's never felt more connected to his purpose than now. We are entering something that's never been seen before
8: a, uh, an enemy that's never been seen before people are dying. I know that, that I have a part in trying to make that not happen. And this is, I don't know if everyone will understand this, but this is my Normandy beach. And this is my reminder.
6: I don't need for everybody to see this. This is my reminder that will always be here growing up. Bob aspired to a career in the military. He holds in high esteem the 156,000 brave soldiers who risked their lives storming Omaha Beach in 1944. On that infamous day, approximately 2,500 American soldiers lost their lives. That's about a thousand less than the number of U.S. healthcare workers who died from COVID-19 during the first year of the pandemic. That's according to a report by The Guardian and Kaiser Health News.
8: If it were not for that day, the D-Day, a lot of things could have been different. Uh, There were a lot of lives lost, given, an incredible amount of sacrifice. And I sometimes think if I were there, not that things would have been different. Obviously not. Uh, Maybe wouldn't have made it. I don't know. But I would have been part changing that. And I feel that right now, that's what I am. I'm part changing this. I feel it in my core that I can help make a difference.
6: Bob's personal history obviously never involved Omaha Beach, but he's been part of a different front, raging war against this pandemic. By May 2021, when Carlos was admitted to the ICU, the ICU was nearing the end of the third wave, each wave characterized as a surge of new cases within or throughout the community. Now, to be fair, experts don't uniformly agree on the number of waves we've had. They certainly don't have a clear start or end date, but the term wave itself is fairly descriptive.
0: What we really call a wave is where we see a significant increase in new cases. That's Dr. Danny
6: Brandstetter, an infectious disease physician and the medical director of infection prevention
0: at Wellstar. A virus is dependent upon its host. It wants to survive. And to do that, it's going to be in as many places that allows it to do that as possible. So in that first big group of infections, we uh, see the virus adapt. So as that kind of ebbs away, the surviving virus is learned to get better at surviving and infecting more people. So when that happens, the next wave, once it finds that particular combination of things that it allows it to survive and flourish, makes that second wave more significant. And with a term we've used throughout the pandemic is variants. So these variants are what comes about. And that's just a virus surviving. Unsurprisingly,
6: the third wave was bigger than the second which was bigger than the first. Pandemics are fluid, never static, and they're sustained through adaptation. And like waves, emotions, motivation, energy, they're fluid as well. Their quantity, intensity, and valence. All of these change in relation to other factors in the environment. So when we talk about healthcare worker distress, this is not a static or fixed experience either. Emotions are dynamic, and subjective feelings change depending on a number of factors. Burnout, though, is a less fluid state than negative feelings. Whereas our emotions oscillate, sometimes moment to moment, burnout is not as transient. And it's important, I think, that we differentiate these concepts. In the last episode, we talked about the backdrop of physician and nursing burnout even before COVID-19. So there is this pre-existing state of affairs... As was the case in Toronto during SARS, during the first wave, uncertainty and fear were palpable and superimposed on that baseline state of affairs of burnout that preceded the pandemic. But burnout wasn't the focus immediately. Those concerns were heightened later. Dr. Sean Lee recalls the early conversations amongst his colleagues you know, first few months of the pandemic and oh my
1: gosh, everybody in our group, you know, we were searching, we were just searching literature. We were reading papers um, uh, before they are even published in these quote unquote preprint journals, you know, hydroxychloroquine, right? You know, like that sort of pathway, you know, uh, latching onto everything. And we're having so many um, calls between all of us in the group. Um,
6: Just trying to find the evidence, trying to find what works, what works. We're consulting with people um, in China. Like much of the general public, many frontline healthcare workers did experience what Daniel Goleman refers to as the emotional tripwire in his book, Emotional Intelligence. In essence, it's the brain shifting into fight or flight in response to a perceived threat.
1: I mean, this is scary. It reminds us that there's something more powerful than um, science and what we have to offer and what we understand. It was tough because we were just,
6: we were still learning how to manage and treat COVID during that time. Caitlin Dooley, a Kennestone nurse whom I referenced in the previous episode about how noisy the ICU had become, speaks to the toll that those first several months had on her.
0: I mean, I was operating for months and just like this constant despair, this constant frustration, crying like coming into work crying coming and then you just turn it off i think the uniqueness was we initially realized that we're all vulnerable we all could get this and we had no way of predicting uh, from the newborn to our elderly hundred uh, centurions who would die uh, or who would require hospitalization because we all had that potential and that thought of all of us getting infected really, really quickly and seeing an exponential number of new cases um, was my biggest concern. And then the second part was we're going to see cases and we've got to care for them, but how do we do it safely? Um, How do we keep people safe? Do we have the right equipment? Do we have enough of the equipment? And trying to predict what that looked like, but also the physical space, are our rooms ready? Do we have the right um, isolation precautions? And the biggest phrase we were all using was flatten the curve, flatten the curve. We didn't wanna see this big surge of people and we're, our, some models had us 10 plus times what we could actually physically care for people in, in our state. And I, you know, that was uh, overwhelming. Despite the anxiety
6: and the uncertainty that the first wave provoked, many healthcare workers were up for the challenge and the community rallied around them as well. Dr. Rebecca Gomez, a clinical health psychologist who supports Wellstar clinician well-being, reflects back on the energy and efforts of both the frontline clinicians and the community during the first wave.
7: It was truly all hands on deck, you know, stepping in, going above and beyond, staying over, taking extra shifts. It really was a wonderful energy
6: towards their dedication to patient care. They also had this enormous amount of community support. You know, people were cheering outside of a hospital when shift change happened or the signs that lined the roads around the parking deck to just thank the health care workers, the food that was being brought in that pr- replenished their energy. So there was this great support system. In addition to the anxiety, the other side of the emotional tripwire was also represented in the attitudes of the workforce. As symbolically represented in Bob Anderson's tattoo, Dr. Brandstetter recalls a sort of bracing posture and an
0: all out preparation to tackle the virus head on in many of his colleagues. I think the realization um, of that moment was, we're ready to get hit hard and hit early, right? We're ready to take that first punch and, and in a fight and a battle or we preparing for competition, we're ready for it. We've trained for things like this, bring it on. But over time, The energy began to wane as the weeks began to
6: drag on, and the effects of COVID-19 encroached upon the lives of non-healthcare workers as well. These types of repeated and chronic exposures to work-related circumstances and other stressors outside of work, they start to crystallize, and it makes for the conditions that make occupational burnout more challenging to keep at bay.
0: The coronavirus crisis now perhaps triggering even tighter travel restrictions. There are fears that the Dow will drop and drop quickly. Many schools around the world, as you know, have shut down, some for extended periods of time. A record shattering. 6.6 million Americans filed for unemployment last week. That's on top of the 3.3 million who filed the week before. And while
6: hospitalizations remained relatively low during the first wave, information was constantly changing and the mortality rate was high. In one retrospective study of hospitalized patients, the mortality rate was above 19% in March and April 2020 for COVID patients included in a cardiovascular disease registry. In May and June 2020, the mortality rate dropped to just under 12%, which suggested some progress in our ability to treat COVID. But then the second wave began to swell, and the daily case count was more than double that of the first wave. And for many healthcare clinicians, that initial battle cry that was heard during the first wave began to take on a different valence.
1: In my opinion, what I see is when you see leaders, physicians, APPs, they they are typically the one that sets the tone. And it doesn't mean that, you know, a figurehead should simply be smiling all the time and saying, we're going to we're going to do this. It's going to be great. But, you know, it certainly (laughs) weighs on everyone's mind when some of the smartest physicians you've ever worked with are absolutely struggling with this too. And I think that's something that I wish the general public really recognized more. We have, you know, especially in this day and age, some of the best minds we've ever had practicing medicine because we have the best science, the best technology, and they're absolutely struggling with this. And that should tell you something. That should make bells go off in your head that we are dealing with something much bigger than we ever have before.
6: American culture was dealing with something big as well. Outside of the hospital walls, Ahmad Arbery was shot while jogging in a neighborhood near Brunswick, Georgia, about a week before the state's first COVID case. His murder went largely unnoticed until the release of a video a couple months later. Breonna Taylor was shot in March 2020, then George Floyd's murder, also documented on a cell phone video in May 2020 and what followed were protests and an emerging national conversation around racial inequality. Tensions were building in America's communities, and every day healthcare workers extracted their full selves out of their respective communities and into the workplace. Their political beliefs, their racial identities, their value systems. Karen Hilton, who spent much of her career in executive coaching and leadership development, captures it well.
8: What I recognize about our clinicians in particular is that they were driving through their own communities seeing those displays and those kind of outcries and also struggling with, you know, having a personal vesting in what people were crying about, um, expressing themselves about. And I think also struggling with the professional responsibilities and in some cases, burdens that they had to maintain partiality and neutrality and to focus on the care of the patient. And I mean, this was personal.
6: In the first episode, we talked about the impact of COVID-19 on every human system from the macro to the micro levels. It was quickly becoming almost impossible to untangle the simultaneous stressors and pinpoint exactly what was contributing most to the stress of the day. Many healthcare clinicians had a little emotional bandwidth to accommodate personal stresses and losses. Sharing the personal story of one such loss
5: is Dr. Rahman. In May of 2020, um, I lost my parents, both of them, in a a plane crash and uh, couldn't make it back home um, for the funeral. So this year and a half has been terrible. Coming back home to you know bringing back COVID every day to back home changing your clothes at the doorstep risking your family's life every day. And then I got COVID in December myself was very very sick with COVID so it's been so you have to detach yourself from patients because you know you got to take care of your family. So it's been it's been rough. It's been, um, it's, been it's been it's been challenging. I was still working through this, um, putting my family aside and taking care of patients and hoping that my quality of care doesn't suffer. I mean that was that was a challenge. Uh, but in a way, I have to be honest. That was that was the way I was able to distract myself from you know, thinking about my parents so much. And I got back to work maybe five days after they died. So yeah, I, my wife does tell me that I bring a lot of stress home. I don't think so, but of course I do. I mean, how can you not bring stress home? But I try to, I try to, you know, shut off as much as I can. I wasn't for my wife and my kids. I don't know where I would be right now. The third wave ushered in a
6: contentious presidential election and the highest numbers seen at that point in the pandemic. On January 6, 2021, almost 4,000 people in the U.S. died due to COVID-19, but that's not the main reason people remember January 6th. A couple weeks after the storming of the Capitol, over 130,000 patients were admitted to U.S. hospitals, including 24,000 in ICUs. But it wasn't just the magnitude or duration of the third wave, It was all of the prior context, the accumulation of stress and the chipping away at the foundation of the healthcare infrastructure. Infrastructure that included first and foremost, the loss of healthcare clinicians who elected to opt out altogether. The national and local staffing shortages heaped tender onto an already raging blaze. Although the third wave was devastating on so many levels, there was some percolating hope with vaccinations available, some frontline clinicians found reasons for optimism. But with that optimism also came a new tension. People with different ideological stances who for personal reasons opted out of the vaccine. And now many of the hospitalizations and deaths seemed preventable. Aisha Vaughn is a CNA. She joined the team almost a year into the pandemic. And she's seen and experienced how access to the vaccine shifted the emotional valence of many frontline healthcare clinicians. Everybody wants this to be over.
2: Most people now are aggravated. Most people in the healthcare sector are aggravated, um, frustrated, um, tired. It's like, would you people please just listen? How many more people have to die?
0: There's this epidemic of misinformation out there. That's the most frustrating part about this pandemic for me um, is I have people who have titles and who have degrees um, that are doing as much damage to what I'm trying to improve um, and doing it with what seems much more ease than it is taking me to try to um, do uh, the things that I'm trying to do to protect people and keep people well. Over the course of months and multiple waves. The
6: experiences incurred by the frontline healthcare workforce was changing many of them. As the COVID-19 virus has undergone adaptations to ensure its survival, healthcare workers have undergone their own adaptations, and that's just so they can survive. One of the most prominent survival tactics is emotional hardening, and it can take something powerful to reverse the course and allow us to reopen to our full range of emotions. Something. Or someone like Carlos.
4: As healthcare workers, we see a lot of people that are frustrated, angry, uh, upset, sad—all these things. That's what I'm used to. And when I see someone that is there in with all these complicated cables all over that room was full of machines and every time I saw this man he was not feeling in distress of course when he was febrile you could see that he was uncomfortable but he was not blaming anybody about this he was not blaming himself about it he was just very sane like living the moment I would say and how can you live the moment on Egmo? I don't know but he was living the moment on Egmo.
2: His his spirit, when you just walked in his room, was one of it's hard to explain. I mean, he was he was calm. He was very grateful for anything that you did for him. He was up in the chair with physical therapy. Physical therapist walked in. And he said, "Okay, Carlos, let's sit on the side of the bed." And he just jumped off the bed. He just literally jumped off and bolted up, standing. And the therapist like, "Stop! What are you doing? Just sit on the side of the bed." And he's like no, I want to go for a walk. I've been sitting for so many days. So he got up and he actually held on to his ECMO within a few days, which is something that usually takes several weeks. Within a few days, he was doing laps along the unit, pushing his ECMO cart. So he will have, you know, the oxygen tank. Uh, the respiratory therapist will push that. The physical therapy will hold on to, to him from behind. The nurse will be there. The perfusionist will be there. And he was doing laps around the unit with a smile on his face, waving at people. It was just like, amazing feeling to see him do that and he was so happy
7: and everybody was invested in this man this is a time when we were also trying to get our physical therapy department another department that was so strapped for resources to come on a daily basis and work with him and you know I've not seen them as uh, enthusiastic as turned on by the prospects of coming and seeing him and working on him on the weekends Some of our nurses, when physical therapy wasn't available, our nurses would get together with him and get him out of bed.
6: I spoke with Chris Cambrone, one of the physical therapists who was consulted to work with Carlos.
3: He was always very happy, hardworking during sessions. It's not always that you get a patient who's excited to see a physical therapist, or sometimes called the pain and torturers. So he was always excited and happy to work hard during our sessions. Um, In the beginning when I got him, he was already doing really well. Um, He didn't need any help walking around really. We were just kind of holding on to him to make sure that he didn't fall over. But he was standing up on his own. He was very strong. Which is unusual in the ICU to get someone who is that high functioning as far as mobility. And so we really just worked on building his endurance and his strength walking. He was walking one lap one day around the ICU and then two laps and then three laps and then four laps and five laps. Every day he was doing more.
7: To us, this was a high point in our uh, our program because we had been trying to get patients on ECMO to be walking. And here was an example of a patient who did it better than anybody else.
6: And remember the cheering from the community during that first wave? Now cheers could be heard within the ICU walls. Heartfelt cheers. Cheers for a patient who was making progress. Cheers that were breaking through the emotional hardening of a care team and allowing them to express real emotion again. Carlos, a man who was unvaccinated during a time when that issue was becoming so divisive, he was lifting the spirits of the team, inspiring hope. In a poetic sort of way, Carlos was caring for the caregivers.
3: He made you
4: want him to do better and want him to progress and, you know, enjoy being here despite, I guess, everything that's involved with the pandemic.
6: <laughs> and this is where compassion gets interesting. It's not just about feelings, it transcends them. It's also about behavior. And after hours of conversations with frontline healthcare workers that told Carlos's story, Something was becoming very clear. These were people connected to their values. They cared deeply. They cheered passionately. They were like family. And Carlos was becoming family. And with his relatives over a thousand miles away and unable to be by his bedside, it was that kind of love and compassion that he would soon need.
1: We'll see.
3: Your fist and grind your teeth, then to look into the sadness that lives under.
6: This was episode two of Parallel Pandemics, a Mind of Medicine podcast, made possible by the Wellstar Health System Foundation. This series is dedicated to all of our frontline healthcare workers, the pillars of compassion. Please support our clinicians by subscribing, rating, and sharing the series. The intro and outro music in this episode was by Nashville singer-songwriter Matthew Perryman Jones. You can check Matthew's music out at mpjmusic.com. Thank you to Wellstar's Clinician Well-being and Resiliency team and to the Maleshko team for helping coordinate, facilitate and produce this project. For the next installment of Parallel Pandemics, join us for episode 3. You won't let me go.